This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. As a part of a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths, I was tasked to teach on the First Noble Truth, the Buddha's clear seeing of inherent unsatisfactoriness and its key role in giving rise to all forms of human suffering. Real understanding of the First Noble Truth liberates our unconscious and conscious habitual tendencies toward harming. May this talk awaken as many beings as possible to the interconnected nature of our human existence and set an equal number on the path of seeing clearly, caring deeply, and acting wisely. So first of all, Happy New Year. People always come to the New Year with different attitudes. Some people make resolutions. Personally, I'm not a fan, but they do seem to work for some people. Shyla actually tasked four of us and herself with starting the new year off by offering to the Sangha the most profound and basic teachings of the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, or as Stephen Batchelor likes to call them, the Four Tasks. It's hard to say who has the hardest job of the five of us, but my job tonight is very specific. I am going to introduce the Four Noble Truths to any of you new people who don't know, and the old ones, it's always good to hear them again. But I'm going to be talking on the first one, which is highly misunderstood due to poor translations into English and other languages. There are many versions of the Four Noble Truths in the text, in the suttas, but the most important thing for you to know is that the Buddha essentially had five friends who he practiced with for six years doing the what at the time were the yoga practices, very ascetic practices for awakening in the Upanishadic tradition of yoga. And he spent six years with these five friends, and at the end of it, he was basically almost at death because part of the asceticism was not eating, and he thought, this hasn't really worked. My mind is suffering. He got up, left the forest. The first village he came to, the first thing that happened was a young woman sat him down and started to feed him. And once he was fed enough where he could think clearly and actually sit up, he essentially said to himself, you know what, I am not getting up from this tree until I have figured out the nature of human suffering. And he did. But after the process of awakening, he realized he had no idea how to tell anybody what had happened to him. Because at the time, this was not part of the tradition of teachings. So he sat under the tree for three more weeks trying to figure out what the hell he was going to (laughs) say. And then he got up, and the first thing he did was he went and he found his five friends and sat them down, and he gave what is now known as the first Dharma talk, which was the Four Noble Truths. There are many different suttas that list the Four Noble Truths, but 
This one from the Diganakaya is very, it's very succinct. It is through not realizing and not penetrating the Four Noble Truths that this long course of birth and death has been passed through and undergone by me as well as by you. What are these four? The truth of dukkha, the origins of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the path of cessation of dukkha. When these four have been realized and penetrated, destroyed is that which leads to renewed becoming. So that is the Four Noble Truths. So you might be wondering about this word, dukkha, which is essentially a word that has been mistranslated for a very long time as suffering. And unfortunately, this has led Buddhism to basically have a dour, dark view of human life (laughs) as little more than human suffering. So we're going to correct the translational mistake by accurately translating the word dukkha as a pervasive, blatant, and or subtle felt sense of unsatisfactoriness, which is concomitant with all internal and external experience. Formally, the first noble truth states that unsatisfactoriness pervades all experience. It's important to notice that the Buddha actually didn't start by elucidating the reasons for this unsatisfactoriness. What he did was he just emphasized the basic need to recognize the pervasiveness of unsatisfactoriness rather than starting by explaining its causes. So how about if we just take a moment, all of us together, and I want you to give yourself a moment here to feel into this felt sense of unsatisfactoriness of the very moment you're in right now. So some of you may not have to look very deeply. Your chair might be uncomfortable. You might be hungry. Maybe you wish you were somewhere else. Maybe you wish I was someone else giving a different talk. Or on the surface of things, maybe everything is okay. But the day was kind of weird. And you have some leftover from something that happened today. Or maybe you're just kind of feeling the basic ickiness of being a human in the world right now. All of these are forms of this pervasive underlying unsatisfactoriness. So one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, Philip Moffat, some of you may have sat with him on retreat, what he says about this unsatisfactoriness is the more deeply you understand the Buddhist teachings on unsatisfactoriness, the deeper it gets. At a certain point of maturity with the teaching, the meaning of the Four Noble Truths is that there is freedom. The Buddha did not claim to invent the insights contained in the Four Noble Truths. He claimed only to have discovered it. So this implies every one of us can also discover the insights in the Four Noble Truths by learning and using tools that expand our capacity to bear the truth of life's unsatisfactoriness while being conscious and intentional in the midst of it. Unfortunately for all of you, tonight is not the night where I get to offer you all the awesome antidotes and all the great skills and everything you can do in order to 
make the unsatisfactoriness a little more pleasant. Sorry, that's not my job. You get that for the next four weeks. Tonight, you all get to hang out in the unsatisfactoriness with me because the truth of this first task is recognition of unsatisfactoriness is almost the ultimate antidote. You can almost be free just from really getting what dukkha is. Okay, so this is my job. Are you ready to go on this journey with me to really, really get to know dukkha? Is this a yes? Okay, here we go. Thankfully, I've written a textbook, right? So, I have already been through the journey of trying to make this understandable. The Buddha taught three distinct categories of unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha. So these three categories are first, physical, mental, and emotional pain. That is actually called dukkha dukkha. It's dukkha twice. Okay, so this is basic pain. The second one is the reality of constant change, which is called viparinama dukkha. Everything's always changing. Human beings don't like it. That's the second form of dukkha. And the third is the underlying discomfort that accompanies our perception of experience itself. And this is called Sankara Dukkha. So this one is about our faulty perception. So internally, these three categories of Dukkha manifest in three distinct ways. The first way is unskillful or unwholesome thoughts and feelings that give rise to unskillful or unwholesome actions. The second way it manifests is we have a distaste for our mortality and frailty particularly the mortality and frailty of this human body. We really don't like it. And the third is the skewed mechanisms of perception that we tend to bring to most moments of our existence. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. And these three categories comprise the proximate causes of hatred, anger, fear, restlessness, intolerance, dread, doubt, overwhelm, and selfishness. So let's go through them. So dukkha dukkha is the ouch of life. You can't get away from the ouch of life. I'm really sorry to tell you there is no human life without the ouch of life. It does not exist. There's lots of new age self-help blah 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 that will tell you you can escape this. You can't. I'm sorry. And you don't want to. This is the thing that wakes you up. Suffering is the cause of awakening. So dukkha dukkha is basically your garden variety, ordinary pain that we encounter and struggle with. Illness, decay, failure, loss, violence, manipulation, loneliness, betrayal. This is all the basic pain of life. These things happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that because they happen, you have to suffer. This is just the basic pain of life. And dukkha dukkha really requires us to show up and be present when we're in it. And contrary to what most people think and what they expect, showing up in the midst of dukkha is not an act of masochism. It's actually a magnanimous and courageous act of self-love because you can't stop it. So the best thing you can do is be in it with courage. And 
By the way, this is something that all three schools of Buddhism teach. Fearlessness and courage in the face of the basic pain of life. The second one, Viparinama Dukkha, is the unsatisfactoriness associated with impermanence. So, of course, physics and philosophy tells us that all conditioned phenomena, people, bodies, objects, relationships, health, wealth, ideas, beliefs, they're all subject to constant change. And, of course, some people think they'd be bored if everything stayed the same. Change implies evolution, progress, right? Becoming something or someone better. It's a good thing, yeah? Don't you think? Well, change has many benefits. So, of course, there's no problem with impermanence. The problem is mostly people have a perpetual demand for upward, forward movement. That leads to the unsatisfactoriness of impermanence because, basically, things eventually decay. Entropy is the second law of thermodynamics, right? Nothing always is better. Nothing is always improving. Nothing is always going to be greater because the nature of things is to rise and fall, to come and go. And we don't like it because we, frankly, in this culture are addicted to what I call maniacal becoming. We think it's always better to become something more. Now, there are other kinds of people who need to feel grounded and they need to feel secure and they need to feel safe. And when they are in the presence of any sense of uncertainty, it produces a lot of inner distress. So the unsatisfactoriness here is demanding permanence in order to feel stable in a world where all things come and go is a guaranteed recipe for unsatisfactoriness. If you hold on to what was, to stave off the arrival of what is, which is going to come anyway. Again, this is the basic pain of human life. It's going to come anyway. If you continue to try to keep things as they are, it will only contract you and restrict your capacity to be flexible and open and generous, no matter what's showing up. It is possible, actually, to harness the energy of continual change. But it's not possible if a person says, I must be safe, I must be secure. There is no such thing as safety and security. It does not exist at all, because that is the nature of the way things are. This is my job tonight, is to keep stating the way things are and to allow all of us to somehow grasp the way things are, with wisdom. Now, the last form of dukkha is sankara dukkha, and this one has the flavor of existential anxiety. Do you all know what I'm talking about when I say existential anxiety? I'm just not comfortable living. I'm not comfortable with the idea of dying. I'm just not comfortable. This is that deeper, pervasive, underlying discomfort that most people have. And because we have this, Sadly enough, this one is tied up with our conception of self, or shall I say, our misconception of self. This identity we also ascribe permanence to, we ascribe separateness to. This too becomes 
a source of unsatisfactoriness. But this is the way we're wired. So in some ways, that part is also dukkha dukkha. It's the basic pain of the human condition. Some people experience sankara dukkha as like a rubbing up against feeling, which is why sometimes people will come into therapy and they, they don't know why they're there. No, I'm serious. They're really uncomfortable, but everything's going fine in their life, but they're really uncomfortable and they don't know why. And they don't understand that there is this rubbing up against experience of being in a human body. So once I tell them that this is like an actual thing, and I totally understand, they're so relieved. It's amazing. Oh, really? I'm not sick? Nope, you're not. Maybe it's becoming apparent to you that unsatisfactoriness is not something we're very good at being with. You know, my favorite example of this is when I wake up in the morning, I am thoroughly convinced my office is still there. I'm thoroughly convinced my car is sitting outside my house. I have no doubt that the way things were when I went to sleep is exactly the way they are Then I'm waking up. This is the illusion of continuance and permanence that we are wired up with so we can live this human life which is so tentative. We are wired up to literally create an illusory life, a life where we assume everything is going to be the same. So when two planes fly into the World Trade Center, we're shocked because to us, it was always supposed to be there. It was never not supposed to be there. And that's why, in some ways, The basic pain of life wakes us up. The moments that shock us the most, the moments when we're just lost. It's like blank. In the Dzogchen tradition, they have a way to induce this experience for people. They'll be sitting all together, they're doing their meditation practice, or maybe there's a teacher teaching, and all of a sudden, somebody will yell at the top of their lungs the word pet so loud that it shocks everyone into the utter blankness of ordinary awareness, just awareness itself. It's the moments that feel most painful. I assure you, these are the moments in which unsatisfactoriness can be your best friend. The recognition of it can wake you up and free you from getting stuck around things like, why me, why this? This this is useless, honestly. It's better, wow, what? is happening now and how am I being with it? So the funny thing is when I went back and I looked at the description of this series of talks it's titled Finding True Happiness. I assure you the word happiness is nowhere in the Sutta on the Four Noble Truths. So despite what the title which I assume was written there to attract people. And here you've come. (laughs) I basically am telling you that these teachings, the task I have been given, I can tell you the Four Noble Truths have nothing to do with happiness. So I thought I would explain that to you so you don't think I'm just being mean. Liberation is the goal of the Four Noble Truths, not happiness. And because mostly in the Western world we don't have a frame for liberation, we get fixated on happiness. 
but actually liberation is the goal of the Four Noble Truths. And by the end of this five weeks, and I really encourage you to come to all five of these, you will really understand what liberation means. Social science basically has differentiated two modes of happiness. Some of you may know this. The first mode is this fluctuating hedonic kind of happiness where it's the transient joy or relief derived from self-motivated seeking of pleasure and avoiding of displeasure. So that's one kind of happiness. And the other kind of happiness is what they consider a more sustainable, authentic happiness. That's a eudaimonic, resilient, non-egoic inner well-being that results from the development of ethics, virtue, wisdom, and compassion. Aristotle was really into this. The Buddha was really into this. Honestly, two-thirds of the Buddhist teachings are ethics, not spiritual stuff. Even so, according to the Buddha, happiness and unhappiness are equally pervaded by unsatisfactoriness. So even sustainable, authentic happiness, which sounds so great, has inherent unsatisfactoriness in it. Why? Because human life is characterized by dukkha dukkha, impermanence, and not-self. There's a basic pain of life humans don't like, and we are wired up to avoid displeasurable experience, to move away from it, to end it, and we are wired up to go toward pleasurable experience and want it and think we need it in order to be happy. We are wired up for this. This is very, very old in us. Avoid pain so you don't eat poisonous plants and die. Go toward pleasure so you make sure your prime directive of survival gets met. You have children. I mean, basically, this is our animal nature. We don't like the ability to not predict. We are the greatest, yes, even though deep learning exists, we are the greatest pattern recognition machines on the planet. We are much better than any AI program. And we will connect dots that do not exist. We will create dots in our minds. We will create virtual realities in our minds that we believe, hook, line, and sinker. We think they're true, so when life shows up some other way, we get really upset. Again, this is the unsatisfactoriness of the way things are. But if you understand this is the way it is, right in the midst of it, you can see it. You can see it. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You can unclothe the wizard. You can see the whole thing in front of you, and it falls apart, and you are free of being dragged around by the delusion that somehow you are the master controller. Everything is supposed to be safe. Everything is supposed to be happy. Everything's supposed to be good. You don't need to be ruled by this. And liberation means you see how you get ruled by your habits and your conditioning right there in the moment, and it falls away because you can see it. And that sounds magical, but I'm, honestly, it's true. This is what the Buddhist teachings are for, is to help you identify, to see, to know clearly what is actually occurring, the truth of the way things are, and liberate yourself from any distortion around it. That's ultimately the fearlessness that Buddhism is talking about. So next Tuesday, you're going to hear all about tanha, which is craving and aversion. So this is the second noble truth. It's the night where you're going to hear why we're so distorted, why we miss everything I'm telling you about tonight, what gets in the way. So it's my job tonight to disambiguate for all of you 
the difference between craving, aversion, and desire. Desire is not craving and aversion. I have, in my lifetime, more than once heard the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho say, the problem is not desire. Get to know desire, don't get rid of desire. And he means this, why? Because desire is your greatest teacher. It reveals your deepest longings and it fuels any actualization you're gonna do in your life in this world. Without desire, life is just passionless, sterile, and bland. Ah, but desire is also a trickster. So when you understand the inherent unsatisfactoriness of desire, it's really important to be able to be with desire in a skillful way and to not get lost in craving and aversion when you're in the presence of desire. No matter what we want, dukkha means imperfection will always be a part of your visioning, your seeking for things, and your realizing of desires. If you can really just come to terms with that, desire will never be a problem for you. Because you won't be lost in the distortion of, I know exactly what I want, I'm, it's going to show up exactly like this, and the outcome is going to be this. Okay? It, this is just distortion. Desire is a journey. It's something you work with. It's something that teaches you. So the three schools of Buddhism actually have three very different ways to get people to understand how to work with desire. And I can tell you these three ways very quickly, and I think it's important for understanding unsatisfactoriness. So Theravada Buddhism, which is the original teachings of the Buddha in the suttas, it recommends clear comprehension and wise action. So the goal here is to intentionally realize the distorted nature of how we usually hold desire and to mitigate a rising of desire itself. So here, they're not making a distinction between the distortion around desire and desire itself. They're saying it's all bad, just get rid of it. Mahayana Buddhism, which was the next turning of the wheel in the first century, they seek to transform desire through the bodhisattvic path. And what that means is they are supremely interested in the recognition of selflessness, emptiness, and this boundless compassion. And one of my other teachers, Anam Tupton, what he likes to say about this is being a bodhisattva means to be courageous and not to go looking for perfect reality or spiritual la-la land for yourself. To have the courage to run right into the messiness, pain, and misery of life. And in the Mahayana, that would be fine because the messiness, the pain, the misery of life ultimately is empty of any inherent truth because of the Four Noble Truths, because of the unsatisfactoriness. That messiness is just messiness. It's just another form of unsatisfactoriness. And finally, the Vajrayana schools of Buddhism, they seek to know desire from within what they call non-elaborative awareness, which is exactly the same as what happens when you scream pet and nobody's expecting it and everybody goes into this blankness. That's non-elaborative awareness. You're awake. You're, you're completely clear. For them, rather than just 
recommending the wholesale abandonment of desire, Vajrayana suggests the skillful means of bringing everything onto the path. And through that bringing all the unsatisfactoriness, the recognition of it onto the path, you awaken to your true nature, which is the awareness that knows the truth. Should I say that again? So the key here is, and I don't care what school of Buddhism you're in, this actually is really good advice. When you're in the midst of experiencing that unsatisfactoriness, if you don't run away, if you don't try to fix it, you don't try to get rid of it, but instead you spend even just one mind moment with it, fully awake in it, it will reveal itself to you. It will reveal the truth of your existence, the truth of its existence. It will reveal what is ultimately true. And that will liberate you from being caught and lost in distortion around it, whatever the distortion might be. And all that happens because of our capacity to know, which is why understanding the way things are is so powerful and why this first task of the Four Noble Truths is ultimately the freedom. If you get that you can always know, it's never not there. You, the luminosity of mind is always there. It's how much it's obscured, how much the distress of unsatisfactoriness is obscuring us from being with what's true, what's ultimately real and true. You don't need to turn it into anything else. So there's no way I could do this talk without discussing right view. The fourth night, you're going to hear about the path to cessate distress over unsatisfactoriness. That night, you are going to hear about the path. And the first task in the path is right view, which is a little mean in some way, because right view <laughs> is the fruition. It's like when you totally get it, and the Buddha starts with, you've totally got it. Somewhat unfair, but if you take the attitude, maybe you've heard the expression, fake it till you make it, this really works with the Eightfold Noble Path. So tonight I'm giving you right view. I'm kind of giving you the cheat sheet for all this, because everything I've told you tonight is right view. My word for right view is actually wise understanding. I kind of like it better. It is the foundation of understanding and recognizing and skillfully working with unsatisfactoriness, no matter how it shows up. So what I've done, and what I will end with tonight, is three insights that I have found helpful. You may not find them helpful, but I've found these insights very helpful in being able to cultivate wise understanding in the midst of the unsatisfactory moments of my life. So these are the three things I try to bring to mind in a moment where I'm having difficulty. The fundamental purpose of human life is to end human suffering. And the only way to do that is to recognize how all things interdependently originate, exist, and pass away. And when I say all things, I mean all internal and external experience. Everything that you feel is outside of you, because that's the way our perception is, all the thoughts, feelings, and everything on the inside that you think is yours and nobody else has any access to. All of this is simultaneously arising 
in concert. And unsatisfactoriness shows up for us when we are not recognizing how everything is ultimately totally interconnected. That's how we get lost in selfishness, because we don't recognize that. So I remind myself, whatever is happening for me right now, there's probably a couple of million other human beings on this planet who are either feeling exactly what I'm feeling or something like it is happening, and they too are experiencing suffering, a moment of difficulty. So it's very important for me to do this for myself because it lets me basically not feel special. And it also opens my heart. Sometimes it's easier for me to have my heart open to other people's suffering than it is to my own. I don't know about any of you, but sometimes that's the way it is for me. The second thing I remind myself of is all human minds are negatively influenced by distortion. It's equal opportunity employer distortion, and we've all got it. And thus, every single human being is the owner and heir of their perceptions, thoughts, emotions, and actions, what in Buddhism is called karma. So that forces me to own my own distortion. It also helps me to recognize someone else's distortion and know it as distortion, and to know I too have distortion. Therefore, I can cultivate compassion for their suffering. And if there's something I can do to alleviate it, I will absolutely do it. The third thing I remind myself of is because of the immeasurable luminosity of awareness, unbounded immeasurable luminosity of awareness, every moment of human existence is endowed with the potential for complete and full liberation from the difficulties we have with unsatisfactoriness. Aim to be a light in a world of darkness, and do that by striving to act wisely, to find clarity and compassion, especially in a moment where there's challenge or distress. And understanding the true nature of why the distress is there really helps us alleviate any extra suffering we might bring to a moment of basic pain. You're going to hear a lot about that next week. It wasn't my job to go there tonight. So I hope that I have in some way helped you understand the first noble truth, and I would be happy to answer any questions anyone has. I, of course, am going to agree with that. Again, my job tonight was not to instruct you in what to do. My job was to tell you, ultimately, there is no problem, ever. <laughs> This is understanding the nature of the way things actually are. There's nothing to be kind toward because samsara and nirvana, there is no difference. This is the ultimate teaching of the Buddha. And that is what liberation is about. Liberation is not, oh, I can be kind to myself in a moment where I'm disturbed. Okay? That's an antidote. Liberation is, I don't need an antidote because I am recognizing the nature of the way things are, and ultimately, this may be painful, and there's no problem here. This is a sticky wick, okay? When somebody goes and behaves in a violent, awful way and does something unethical, there is a problem with that. Would you say there is a problem? So we can both agree that the ethics will tell us there is a way to be a good human being. Yes? Liberation is not about that. 
Not the liberation I'm talking about tonight. That is part of the path to cessation, okay? Which you're gonna hear about in three more weeks. My job tonight is to tell you the truth of the way things are, which is all violence arises from this basic distortion, the primordial ignorance that is a part of the basic lack of understanding that human beings have about the way things actually are. If we understood the interconnectedness, no harm would ever get done. There would be no way for a human being to harm anything because they would be harming themselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.